starting at chapter, at uh, verse 1. Darius decided to appoint 120 satraps over the kingdom, stationed throughout the realm, and over them three administrators, including Daniel. These satraps would be accountable to them so that the king would not be defrauded. Daniel distinguished himself above the administrators and satraps because he had an extraordinary spirit. So the king planned to set him over the whole realm. The administrators and satraps, therefore, kept trying to find a charge against Daniel regarding the kingdom. But they could find no charge or corruption, for he was trustworthy, and no negligence or corruption was found in him. Then these men said, We will never find any charge against this Daniel unless we find something against him concerning the law of his God. So the administrators and satraps went together to the king and said to him, May King Darius live forever. All the administrators of the kingdom, the prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors have agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an edict that for 30 days, anyone who petitions any god or man except you, the king, will be thrown into the lion's den. Therefore, your majesty, establish the edict and sign the document so that as a law of the Medes and Persians, it is irrevocable and cannot be changed. So King Darius signed the document. Then Daniel, when Daniel learned that the document had been signed, he went into his house. The windows in its upper room opened toward Jerusalem, and three times a day he got down on his knees, prayed, and gave thanks to his God, just as he had done before. Then these men went as a group and found Daniel petitioning and imploring his God. So they approached the king and asked about his edict. Didn't you sign an edict that for 30 days any man who petitions any god or man except you, the king, will be thrown into the lion's den? The king answered, As the law of the Medes and Persians, the law stands and is irrevocable. Then they replied to the king, Daniel, one of the Judean ex exiles has ignored you, the king, and the edict you sign, for he prays three times a day. As soon as the king heard this, he was very displeased. He set his mind on rescuing Daniel and made every effort until sundown to deliver him. Then these men went to the king and said to him, You as king know it is a law of the Meds and Persians that no edict or ordinance the king establishes can be changed. So the king gave the order, and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, May your God, who you serve continually, rescue you. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den. The king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the signet rings of his nobles, so that nothing in regard to Daniel could be changed. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and he could not sleep. At the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. When he reached the den, he cried out in anguish to Daniel. Daniel, servant of the living God, the king said, has, you, has your God, who you serve continually, been able to rescue you from the lions? Then the Daniel spoke with the king. May the king live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths. They haven't hurt me, for I was found innocent before him. Also, I have not committed a crime against you, my king. The king was overjoyed and gave orders to take Daniel out of the den. So Daniel was taken out of the den, uninjured, for he trusted in his God. The king then gave the command, 
and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and thrown into the lion's den, they, their children, and their wives. They had not reached the bottom of the den before the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. Then King Darius wrote to those of every people, nation, and language who live in all the earth. May your prosperity abound. I issue a decree that in all my royal dominion, people must tremble in fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God and he endures forever. His kingdom will never be destroyed and his dominion has no end. He rescues and delivers. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. For he has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. So Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. This is the word of the Lord. Good evening, let me have my welcome. My name is Paul, if I haven't met you. And uh, to those who are regular, thank you so much for your prayers for the last couple of weeks. I am standing, I'm vertical, and I have a voice. But I'm really just thankful and just touched by how many people contacted me to say they were praying. So thank you so much. Let me pray for us. Uh, Father, we are people here tonight who believe you and we want you to speak to us. We want to be people who are transformed by your word. So get rid of any pride in us. Get rid of the arrogance that says we don't need to hear. I pray, Lord, by your spirit that you would change us, that you would point out areas of our lives that need to be changed. And uh, Lord, by your spirit, would you speak powerfully to each one of us tonight? In Jesus' name, amen. We've called this series uh, Courageous. I don't know whether you know what that word courage really means. The dictionary definition is courage is the, the strength to do something no matter how dangerous or difficult it is. As a Christian courage is, is the strength to do something for God no matter how dangerous or difficult that is. Christian courage is the, the willingness to stand up for God no matter what the consequences. A Christian courage is that, that desire to, to honor God above all, all other things in life, no, ma- no matter what you might face because of it. And I want to suggest that just to, just to live as a Christian today in this world takes courage, doesn't it? To put your hand up and say, yeah, I believe in Jesus, I'm a Christian in a world that is increasingly anti-God, that takes courage. I want to suggest that to live an exemplary Christian life, to live your life, you know, obeying God, living for Jesus, living God's way, shining as different in this world, that takes courage today. I love reading biographies. I love reading about Christian men and women. Here are a few of my heroes on the screen. This guy, Eric Liddell. Do you know his story? You you probably know his story from Chariots of Fire, but that's just part of his story. We all know that Eric Liddell uh, refused to compete in the 100-meter Olympic final because it fell on a Sunday, and that was his day of worship. We know that part of the story. 
What we don't know is that because of that decision, he received hate mail and threats. And we know the story that he went on to win gold in the 400 meters with that, that note in his pocket saying, he whom God honors, God will honor back. We know that part. We don't know that soon after he won that Olympic gold, he quickly realized that, that human applause was just fleeting. And all this rock stardom of being an athlete, it was just fleeting. And so you might not know that he actually then spent the rest of his life as a missionary in war-torn China. He dedicated his whole life to caring for the poor and the sick and the marginalized in China. And so day after day, he would carry injured, sick people on the back of his bike, dodging the gunfire, getting them to, to safety and to aid and to hospitals. And you might not know that he was imprisoned with many other Christians, with thousands of Christians in China. And there was no running water and there was no toilets and minimal food. But he was the exemplary Christian who, who set up church services in the prison. And he was the exemplary Christian who, who set up schools from within the prison. And he kept on caring for the sick and the poor and the needy. And quote, he became the most respected person in that prison because of his exemplary behavior. Isn't that extraordinary? He became the most respected person in the prison because of his exemplary Christian behavior. And he died at age 43 of a stroke as he continued to help other Christians. I think he's a hero, don't you? A hero of the faith. He wants to be known not for the chariots of fire, gold medal. He wants to be known as a man of God who gave his life, serving his Savior and living for others. This lady in the middle is called Perpetua. She's the first Christian female author because her diaries were published. She lived in the second century in North Africa. Now her life was so exemplary as a Christian. She was known for her good deeds and her kindness and her compassion. And, and so when they wanted to, to kill all the Christians, she was first on the list. Because she was known as that good Christian girl. So age 22, she was brought before the governor and, and she was asked to deny her faith. She said, I, I can't deny my saviour. Her father pleaded, her mother pleaded, think of your child. They said, she said I will not deny my saviour. And so they threw her into the arena. Yes, with, with lions. Real live lions. Now what was she doing as she faced the lions? This extraordinary Christian woman was praying with other Christians and singing psalms and hymns to her God and saying to the other Christians who were anxious and fearful, trust our God, he will not fail you. Please don't deny him. I think she's a hero. This other lady here is Elizabeth Elliot. Have you heard of her? You've probably heard of her husband, Jim Elliot, because we always talk about him. He's the man who uh, went with Elizabeth to the mission field to try and, and bring the gospel to an unreached tribal group called the Orca Indians. And we know that Jim, her husband, was martyred and killed by that tribe. What you might not know is that just after he was killed, 
Elizabeth chose to go back to that tribe with her 10-month-old daughter, Valerie, and to live amongst the people who killed her husband. And they report how it was her love, her forgiveness, her compassion, her godliness, that was just so remarkably different that many of those tribal people became Christians. See, what she was known for was her exemplary behavior, her kindness, her compassion, her forgiveness, and her love. I could tell you the many more stories. A friend of mine, is, uh, he became a Christian from a strict Muslim family, and his family hate him. And so he wakes up every day, he says, Today, Lord Jesus, I just want to live for you. Help me to be kind, help me to be compassionate, help me to be generous, help me to be godly. And for that, he's persecuted. I've got a friend in London, her name's Sarah, and she's a, a godly Christian woman, who works in a big law firm in London. Her, her behavior at work was so exemplary that when she went to her boss and said, uh, I'm going on a Christian mission, could I have time off work to go on this Christian mission? And her boss said to her, yes, you can have time off work. And actually, how can our firm help support and sponsor this Christian mission? A non-Christian boss is willing to financially support a Christian mission because of the exemplary behavior of this woman. I find that remarkable. Just that simply living a consistent Christian life. And people notice, don't they? Another friend of mine called Craig, he comes from a non-Christian family. His family ridicule him and mock him for his faith. But the way he responds is not to retaliate and not to get aggressive. He just lives this consistent, faithful, godly, exemplary life in front of them. And one by one by one, his family have started to come to Christ. And I'm inspired by many of you who live these exemplary Christian lives. You strive to live for Jesus in very difficult situations. Tonight we're looking at a man called Daniel who I think is held up as this courageous Christian man who lived an exemplary life. We're looking at perhaps one of the most famous stories in the Bible, Daniel in a lion's den. Please forget your kid's Bible. Forget the, the teenager or this youthful Daniel with these cuddly, tame lions. Let's, let's walk through the real story. So firstly, Daniel, he is distinguished, yet despised. Distinguished, yet despised. That's my description. Uh, the year is 539 BC. There's a new king, Babylon has fallen to the Medes and the Persians, and this new king is called Darius. And so by now, Daniel is in his 80s. Have you got that? He's in his mid-80s. He arrived in Babylon as a 15-year-old or a 16-year-old. So for almost 70 years, he's lived as a foreigner in this foreign land. But for 70 years, his life has been consistent and faithful and prayerful and godly. We've seen that by his courteous, kind behavior towards Nebuchadnezzar. He won the king over. Even when he's shunned by Belshazzar in chapter 5 and marginalized, he kept on being godly. And now Darius is on the throne and he makes him prime minister. 
chapter 6, verse 1, Darius decided to appoint 120 satraps over the kingdom. So you've got the people with 120 leaders, and over them, verse 2, three administrators. And, and verse 3, Daniel distinguished himself above the administrators and satraps because he had an extraordinary spirit. So the king planned to set him over the whole realm. He, he planned to make him premier or prime minister. But look at that word in verse 3, distinguished. It's a beautiful word. Daniel distinguished himself. Uh, other translations say he had exceptional qualities. It's not just talking about his skill set. It's talking about his character. I want you to imagine that Daniel walks in here tonight as an 85-year-old. And we line up hundreds and hundreds of character witnesses. And here's what they'd say. Uh, uh, Daniel, his, his words. I've never heard him gossip. I've never heard him slander. I've never heard him get angry or be malicious. His words are kind. His words are truthful and honest and gentle and edifying. Oh, and that Daniel, his character He's, he's caring, he's compassionate, he's empathetic, he's a peacemaker, he's patient, he's self-controlled, he is wise, he is prayerful, he is humble. Can you imagine someone saying that about you? Would you wouldn't you just love to have that kind of character reference? Do you know those people in your life? Are, are there people that you know where their godliness just oozes out of them. You think, what is it? The way they speak, the way they listen, the, the care they show, the decisions they make. We call them the good people. But the biblical word is they are distinguished people. They're exceptional in their character. Now, King Darius spotted that and all the people spotted it. And I think Daniel is like this role model of how to live as a Christian in this world even when we are surrounded by people with very different beliefs. And I love the fact that Daniel didn't withdraw from the world into his little Jewish ghetto. So a quick word for Christian people here. You might feel that you are living in a world that's increasingly hostile to God. But that doesn't mean that you get into our little Christian ghettos. And it certainly doesn't mean that we get aggressive and we get intolerant. We just get involved in the world living these beautiful, beautiful, exemplary Christian lives. Did you read verse 4? It's a stunning verse. So his workers, his co-workers, his colleagues, they kept trying to find a charge against Daniel. Daniel. They are jealous of him. They want to bring him down. But they could find no charge and no corruption, for he was trustworthy, and no negligence or corruption was found in him. Isn't that extraordinary? I think he's saying that these co-workers, they, uh, they Googled him. They looked at his past. They tried to sift his private life just to find, find a, a bit of dirt against this man. But they can find nothing. No charge, no corruption, no negligence. He is trustworthy. He's flawless. I wonder why these 
co-workers wanted to trap him. They could have been jealous that he had the top job. I actually think it's more that you know that light exposes darkness. You know when you are really, really impatient and you meet these people who are really, really patient and it makes you even more uncomfortable. You think, I want to bring them down a bit. I think that's happening. Daniel was trustworthy and they were not. Daniel was compassionate and they were not. And that made them feel a bit uncomfortable. Now, I think that this type of person, this distinguished impeccable, flawless person would be respected, but they don't. They look for a way to trap him, and verse 5 tells us that they will never find any charge against him unless we find something against him concerning the law of his God. They said the only way we can bring this man down is if we pit his God against his king. They are really convinced that his convictions about God are so clear that's the only way to trap him. And so in verses 6 to 9, they dupe the king. That is so easy. They, they prowl around and they manipulate and they scheme and they look for Daniel to devour. And they flatter the king and they play on his pride and they persuade the king to pass this stupid edict that for 30 days, anyone who prays to any god or man except the king will be thrown to the lion's den. Now, what would you do if you were Daniel? What would you do if you were told that you couldn't pray for 30 days? I think, sadly, for many of us, we wouldn't bat an eyelid. What were the options for Daniel? Daniel could have said, okay, I'll just obey the king. It's just 30 days. God won't mind. Try telling a child that they can't talk to their father for 30 days. That's how Daniel felt. The thought of him not being able to talk to his heavenly father for 30 days. I can't do that. Now, Daniel could have gone on the, def the defensive, couldn't he? You know, appeal to the king, set up the petition, shout about how outrageous this all is and how the Christian voice isn't being heard. He could have put up, uh, put up hate posters and negative posters slamming the opponent. He's not going to do that. He's not aggressive, he's just distinguished and exemplary. I love verse 10. It's so understated, so normal, but so powerful. When Daniel learned the document had been signed, he went into his house, the windows in his upper rooms opened towards Jerusalem, the city of God, and three times a day, he got down on his knees and he prayed and gave thanks to his God just as he had done before. Isn't that powerful? What did Daniel do? Just kept on doing what he'd always done. That quiet, faithful, consistent, prayerful life. Please don't read verse 10 as Daniel flaunting his defiance, you know, flinging the windows open saying, stuff you king. He'd always pray like that, so he just keeps on doing what he's always done. Daniel is a man who is so soaked in prayer three times a day. Thank you, Lord, for your mercy. Thank you, Lord, for your kindness. Lord, I need your strength and your wisdom here. This is the prime minister we're talking about. He's not too busy to get on his knees to pray. Actually, he needs to get on his knees to pray. 
And I want to suggest that perhaps that's what gave him this distinguished exemplary life. He is so connected with his heavenly father. He's so dependent on God. He so wants to honor and to glorify his God. He just has to pray. So he's so distinguished, he's so prayerful, and yet he's despised. He's hated for it. You see verse 13? These conspirators replied to the king, Daniel, one of those Jewish exiled people, he's not one of us. He's ignored you, the king. He's deliberately disobeyed you. And he keeps on praying three times a day. Now you sense Darius' unease. He feels trapped. He feels powerless. You know, in this story, Darius reminds me of, of another governor or another king in the Bible who was, had supposed power, but he was kind of trapped and like a people pleaser. You know what I'm talking about? Pontius Pilate. Remember him when they brought Jesus, the innocent man, and Pilate said, I find no basis for a charge against this man. But like Darius, Pilate was swayed by the crowd and a weak people pleaser. And so verse 16, the king gave the order, they brought Daniel and threw him to the lion's den. I find that extraordinary. A distinguished, compassionate, kind, godly man just thrown to the lions. Let me say a couple of things at this point. You're here tonight and you claim to be a man or woman of God. You claim to follow Jesus Christ. The Bible calls us to live distinguished, exemplary Christian lives. It calls us to live differently. It talks about working on your character and working on your conduct Making sure that in your office and in your home or whether you're changing nappies or speaking to a, a, a crowd or whether you're studying, that your lives are so exemplary that no one can point the finger at you and say, well, you're a hypocrite. And I'm convinced that it's linked to our prayer lives. We cannot do life without our God. We haven't got the strength to live in this increasingly hostile world without time spent on our knees in prayer. And I am so inspired by seeing older Christian men and women whose prayer lives are so rich. You know, people have been Christians for 20 years, 30, 40, 50 years. But they realize they need to pray more, not pray less. So thank you to those men and women who inspire me just to keep on praying and be more prayerful. We're called to live different lives, but if we do, don't be surprised if you are despised. Immediately that you start to live differently in the world. You've got this clash of cultures, haven't you? So you walk into the office and you're asked to lie, you're asked to cheat. You think, I can't do that. You go to your family lunch and they're upset with you because you're serving on kids' church and you miss lunch. And you think, well, I actually want to serve my God. Or that tension with yourself. You know, you, you go to your, to your room, you think, you know, how am I going to spend my time this week and my money this week? And what do I do with the rest of my life? And am I going to put God first? That's the kind of tension that we live in. And don't be surprised if the world doesn't like us. 
let me be clear, they, they shouldn't not like us because we are arrogant, bigoted, intolerant, and aggressive. That is wrong. But they might not like us if we're living these exemplary lives that are shining light into their dark world. So please, like me, would you strive just to be more like Daniel? Let's look at God. Where is God in all this? Do you ever ask that? Do you ever look at your life and think, where is God? As you stand up for your convictions and you're mocked and you're slandered, where is God then? As you stand up for your faith and you get hate mail for it, where is God then? Where is this so-called all-powerful, all-righteous, all-caring, all-seeing, all-knowing God? Where is God in this story? How does Daniel end up in the lion's den? Does God, does God not care? Here's my second point. God is our sovereign saviour. You've got to believe that about your God. He is sovereign. He's in control of all things and he's able to save. That's what Darius exclaims in verses 26 and 27. He is our living God. He's alive. He's not dead. He sees. He knows. He's active. He's eternal. He endures forever. He is powerful. His kingdom, that will never be destroyed. He saves. He rescues. He delivers. He performs signs and wonders. That is the God that we believe in. I want to remind you that God was in control this entire time. God was in control when the enemies trapped him. God was in control when Daniel went into the lion's den. God was in control when Darius was so weak. This whole incident, this whole situation is in the hands of God. So Daniel's in the den. In verse 17, the stone is brought and placed over the, the den, over the pit, so no one can escape from the inside. And the, the seal of the signet ring is so no one can escape, no one can open from the outside. And these lions, they are hungry and they are real and they are raging. Please don't think that the lions were off their food that night. You know, the saptops go in and they devour within seconds. This is a picture of human helplessness and utter hopelessness. But what's really strange in this story is you spot who had the sleepless night? It's not Daniel. In the, the terrifying pit, he sleeps soundly. It's the king, verse 18, who is restless and couldn't sleep. And so, verse 19, he rushes to the lion's den and he cries out, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God been able to save you? Great question. Is your God powerful to save? Can your God deliver you? Can your God save you? And the people said, of course he can. Of course God can save. Now in this situation, God sent an angel and he protected his servant. He shut the mouth of the lions. He's sovereign even over the mightiest of beasts. He protected his people from harm. And we're told in verse 23, because he trusted in his God. Verse 22, he was found innocent. And what's striking is that Daniel is released and the enemies take his place. The righteous is delivered and the guilty are punished. 
The friend of God is rescued and the enemies of God are killed. And that's how our God works, isn't it? God really is in control. God really is sovereign, even when it looks like he's not. And he really does say, that's a repeated word. Verse 16, God rescues you. Verse 20, God is able to rescue. Verse 27, God rescues and God delivers. That is the God that Daniel trusted, a God who could save, a God who was powerful. You see, in many ways, Daniel is not just an example for you or I to follow. And thank God for that. Because if I just stood here tonight and said, you know, be like Daniel, you would leave here feeling so guilty and so weighed down and such a failure. Because let's be honest, we all stuff up, don't we? None of us here live these exemplary lives. None of us speak always kind words. We're not perfect. Because this story is not just about Daniel being an example for us. This story is more about Daniel being forerunner to the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you spot the parallels? Jesus Christ, another man who lived a perfect, exemplary life. He was trustworthy. No charge was found against him. And what, what was Jesus doing when they arrested him? He was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. What was he praying? God, you're in control. Your will be done, not mine. And so they came with the swords, and they came and they arrested him, and they brought him before the governor, Pontius Pilate. And Jesus looked weak. He was flogged. He was beaten. He was battered. He was bruised, and they shouted, crucify him. And Pilate, like Darius, had the power to release him. But he chose not to. And we're told that was God's will that Jesus should die. And so they hung him up like a criminal and they pierced his hands and pierced his feet. And he prayed, Father, forgive them. See all the similarities? But what's the difference in this story? Daniel was spared death. And God rescued him from the lion's mouths. But God allowed his son to die. He didn't intervene. Why was that? Oh, God could have intervened, couldn't he? God could have stopped the cross happening, but he chose not to. Why? I'll tell you why. Because very early on that first Easter morning, the women came to the tomb and the stone had been rolled away. Because death could not hold him down and Jesus had to die. He had to die to defeat death. He had to rise again to prove that the death has been defeated. Your sins have been paid for. See, in allowing his son to die, God is saying to you and to me, you have the most extraordinary, remarkable, powerful saviour. And just like Daniel, you are helpless and you are hopeless and you cannot save yourself. And unlike Daniel, we cannot say, I've been found innocent. We can't say those words because we haven't honoured God always. And we have been selfish and proud and rude and wrong people. And we do deserve that punishment. And we desperately need forgiveness. Let me read from the hymn, Alleluia, Will a Saviour. Man of sorrows, what a name. 
for the Son of God who came ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a saviour. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood. Alleluia, what a saviour. Guilty, vile and helpless we. Spotless lamb of God was he. Full atonement, can that be? Alleluia, what a saviour. Is that what you're singing in your heart? Hallelujah, praise God, I've got a glorious saviour. Jesus stood in my place. Jesus took my penalty, my pardon, he won. Jesus saves me from my sin and Jesus saves me from death and Jesus saves me from hell and Jesus saves me from Satan who is roaring around, prowling around like a roaring lion waiting to devour us. And we look at the cross and we say, no, 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 he, is no, no, he has no power over me. I'm a child of God and I'm loved by God and I'm forgiven by God. Not because I'm exemplary and not because I'm distinguished and not because I'm perfect. I'm none of those things. But Jesus loves me and Jesus forgives me. And that is so liberating and so beautiful. And sure, there'll be times where we cry out in life, why God, what are you doing God, where are you God? God doesn't promise that we'll never suffer and God doesn't promise he will never come to harm. But he does promise his grace is sufficient. And he does promise that if we keep on trusting in our Lord Jesus Christ as our sovereign saviour, no matter what the world hurls at us, what rejection we, we face, what abuse we cop, we can be confident, we can be certain that Jesus loves us. This I know because the, the Bible tells us so. So I need to ask you, friends, are you there tonight saying, Alleluia, what a saviour. Alleluia, what a saviour. Because that is the best way to start to live this distinguished, exemplary life. Please don't think you can live this exemplary life just by being a better person because you'll be weighed down with guilt and you'll feel a failure the whole time. But when every day you come to Jesus and say, today's a new day, Jesus, help me to live for you today. That is liberating. So I don't know who your heroes are, but we do need role models of men and women to look up to and say, I want to be like that. Not because of their worldly success, but because of their distinguished, godly, exemplary lives. And I reckon over the coming months and coming years, Christians will need more and more and more courage just to keep living for Jesus. Please do it in a very gentle, kind, compassionate and caring way. I'm going to ask Kate to come forward. Ask Kate us a few questions about what helps her to keep on, I guess, trusting her Saviour and living an exemplary Christian life or, or seeking to. This is Kate. Seeking, definitely, yeah. Um, tell us a bit, Kate. So, uh, you're a Christian, so how did you first sort of come to know Jesus and come to follow Jesus? Uh, yep, so I um, was raised in a Christian home, very thankful for that. Uh, but 
I didn't put my faith in Christ until I was 17 uh, years old. So I was uh, five years at that point into a 10-year um, battle with chronic fatigue syndrome. So um, for about seven of those years, I was housebound. And um, it was through that experience of, uh, yeah, of, of suffering that God led me to realize that um, my, my physical need was great, um, but my spiritual need was greater still. I was, I was far more broken spiritually uh, apart from him um, than I was physically. And so, yeah, he really did a transforming work in, in my life. Um, and, yeah, gave my life to him at 17 and um, have never looked back since. Thank you. So we looked tonight about Daniel who kind of like he always sought to honor God and his faith in God shaped everything. But since you became a Christian, how has your, sort of your faith in Jesus shaped decisions you've made and choices you've made? Um, I think primarily I, I'm not seeking to build my own kingdom. I'm seeking to build his in this life. And so um, I think if I believe the truth of the gospel, um, then that will uh, affect every sphere of my life. Um, it will affect all of the decisions I make. Now, I get this wrong all the time, so please don't think um, I'm perfect. I'm like everyone, and I screw up probably more often than I get things right. But by his grace, um, yeah, he enables me to make choices in my relationships, uh, in my studies, in my work, um, in, yeah, what I've chosen to do uh, with my life. Um, and, yeah, I think... From who I will choose to date, if will I date a Christian or will I date a non-Christian? That's a big decision to make. And knowing and loving Jesus shapes that. Um, I believe he has a lot to say over that. Um, what will I do with my life? Will I stay in a role in the UK that was very successful and that promised great things? Um, or will I choose to come out and study ministry? Um, so it's, it's shaped a lot of my, yeah, a lot of my decisions. Have there been any significant sort of lion moments where you've, your faith has really been put to the test and you think, am I going to stand up for Jesus right now? Yeah, there's been a lot. I think they happen every day, <laughs> to be honest. Um, I think one one for me was, as I've already mentioned, I was, I was in the UK. Um, I was working for a good company, a very promising um, position. Uh, but I knew that God um, was calling me at that season to pursue uh, ministry um, and training. Uh, that's not for everyone. Please don't hear me saying that you should all leave your jobs and go into ministry. God needs his people everywhere, and, and that's awesome. But for me at that time, uh, I just knew that he was calling me to something else. But the pressure to stay there was huge. Uh, I was in a company um, where, yeah, it was just a lot of really ungodly kind of unwholesome talk, and just um, people just didn't know Jesus. They were really fiercely opposed um, to him. There was a lot of pressure of me to stay in that role, and it made no sense to them whatsoever why I would leave that a couple of weeks after getting a pay rise to just walk into the total unknown, um, the other side of the world, and train uh, in ministry and then go on to Bible college. That made no sense. Um, I, had, I once worked for a boss who was um, a staunch atheist and would challenge me every day uh, on why I was living for Jesus and what the point of that was. Um, and... Yeah, all the time I'm faced with people who ask me, um, I guess, like this is just really personal, but I, I feel, I really feel compared to, compelled to share it. Um, why, why, are you, why are you single? Um, why are you holding out for a Christian guy? And um, why, 
why would you do that? Um, and so I, f- I, I face opposition in actually standing firm that I believe that God um, has something to say very strong on that. And, and I will stand firm on that. But I actually get a lot of kickback um, from people over, over that decision. So it, it's really across the board that I'm sure that probably that maybe resonates with quite a few people here. Thanks for sharing. Mm-hmm. I think what, what I love about Kate's story there is that it's not this sort of these, these amazingly traumatic moments. It's just the everyday decisions to wake up each day to say, I want to honor God today. And that just naturally just brings some tension and opposition. So thank you for your faithfulness and thank you for your honesty. Thank you. And I just want to say I'm really not getting it right very often. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I'm trying. God, God's grace is good. So yeah. thank you. That's important. We're, we're all failures, aren't we? But we've got a God who forgives. Yeah. Thanks, Kate. I'm going to pray and I'll invite the musicians up. Uh, Father, thank you for reminding us tonight of your lavish love in the Lord Jesus. Thank you that uh, you do forgive us when we fail. And thank you, Father, that in your kindness, uh, you give us men and women to encourage us and to be those great role models. Help us to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus and help us to seek out really good role models of people who we want to be like. I ask that for Jesus' sake.